ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Game of Thrones podcast. I'm your host, Carmine of Red Team Review, and I'm joined here once again by the Red Viper himself, Preston Jacobs. Preston? I come for justice for Dorne. That was so cringy, but I'm going to leave it there anyways. (laughs) Today we're here to discuss the Dornish Master Plan, a three-year-old theory made by Preston Jacobs in an attempt to uncover Duran Martell's true scheme on how to destroy House Lannister and cripple them for years to come. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you guys know that we are finally on SoundCloud and iTunes, with Google Play coming soon, maybe. But uh, yes, we are finally on iTunes, all thanks to Phil the Issues Guy, so a big thank you to him. And a big shout-out to him as well for making that happen. Now, Preston, before we begin, you want to answer a couple of questions and comments from the fans? I, I do love the questions and comments. So, <laughs> the first question <laughs> is, how old, how old is Preston? Carmine always alludes to it, but never gives an answer. Now, before you answer this, let, let me explain. Let me, let me give you my, my reasoning as to why you should never tell anybody your age. Okay. I just think it's a funny running gag we have now that... <laughs> We that you were at Woodstock two or three. Uh, I never and, went. And to, that, I never went to them. They were just going on oh, while you were alive. Yeah, I mean, um, you, I mean, you're right that the mystery of things is mm-hmm. like, uh, and that, and that that's a big George R. R. Martin thing, like mystery, like needing the mystery. He has a story called uh, "With Morning Comes Mistfall." about how important mystery is and how some of these some of these things we're never going to find the answers to like a lot of these questions and theories because he wants them to be ambiguous so maybe that I should... worries me a little and we're going to get to that with like a uh, cuz I have a white walker thing I want to talk to you yeah. about that and that worries me that you say that but like I always like putting in the mysteries for example like you were old enough and and alive to watch Return of the Jedi when it came out in theaters, right? Return of the Jedi came out in '83, so you were old. You were alive at that time. I, I saw Return of the Jedi in the theater. Yes. Nice. I. But you were not old enough to have seen or even been alive for the first uh, moon landing. No. <laughs> no. Okay. So we're giving we're giving the audience a, a bit of a clue because like everybody knows, I'm 25 and you're older than me. But yeah, like so. my mom is like what 47 around there, so. You're younger than my mom. Yes. So we're we're giving people some clues and hints. <laughs> like I was born in '91. Do you do you remember what you were doing in '91? Uh, yeah, I remember what I was doing in '91. G- it... Give give the audience something you were doing in '91. D- don't give it away, but you know, just as a, like a like a hint of how old you might have been uh, at not, '91. '91 is like when I was like, I mean, that's like maximum suffering of most human <laughs> beings. Like and then and then that that kind of gives that kind of gives the hint of what was going on in 1991. For you? No, for most people. If in fact, if you didn't <laughs> suffer at this time in life, like you kind of end up different from everybody else. Like really? I know some people. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm like, yeah. When I say to people like, "What you liked that time of your life?" They're like, "Yeah, no, it was fine." I'm like, "What's wrong with you?" <laughs> Jesus Christ. I always love comments where I tell people my age and they, everybody goes, dude, I have a couch that's older than you. Bro, my socks are old. Thanks. Thanks for letting me know there are things older than me. Thank you. I mean, I'm really, I'm uh, really giving it away, really, when I, when I say, like, the worst Not thing. really. I mean, You're not I'm, really giving it away. I'm talking about middle school, okay? Anybody that fucking liked middle school, there's something <laughs> wrong with them. Everybody, everybody's most painful time of their life is middle school. It should be. Um, 
<laughs> not for me. I, I thought middle school was okay, but oh, oh my god, what is wrong with you, dude? <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, uh, question two. Uh, this one guy asks. I don't have his name here. I'm sorry for that. If you guys could have uh, on the podcast one cast member from the show, who would it be and why? I want to. I want to have the guy who played Stannis. I think his name is Stefan Delane. Mm. And whenever, whenever you, see, I don't watch interviews with the cast members because they all say the same fucking shit. Yeah. Oh, they're great to work with. He was great to work. I don't care. But when you when you watch Stefan Delane's interviews and fan asking him questions, he just looks so unhappy and so just like not giving a shit. I love. I, I love. Yeah, he just doesn't give a fuck. He like, does, doesn't, doesn't care. <laughs> I want to ask him why. Like, are you mad because you know this? This is probably what you'll re- be remembered for for a long period of time. Kind of like uh, Alex the fucking guy. Hating fucking yeah. <laughs> like Alex. Get. I remember a story that uh, someone told me a while ago where this one kid, young boy, asked Alec Guinness for his autograph, and Alec Guinness said, "I'll give you this autograph if you never watch Star Wars again." I'm like, damn, Alec Guinness. Fuck, man. So is he is Stefan Delane mad because he'll probably be always remembered for you know Stannis and the showrunners kind of destroyed his character? Like I don't know, but yeah, yeah. So, uh, so as it turns out, I, I growing up in high school, I was very good. For, I only had you know a, a handful of, of of good friends, and one of my friends became a uh, moderately successful actor. It's whoa, whoa, who are we talking about here? Can't you give it away? Uh, well, he, I'll just say he's in the he he was in the wire, and um, oh shit, and and that's kind of really important to the, to the situation because because mm-hmm. I grew up in Baltimore, every single person in Baltimore and and the Baltimore area has seen the wire, and so he's done all sorts of other stuff, all sorts of great stuff, fantastic movies since, but all people really remember him for is. The wire and especially like we went to a party in baltimore and we arrive in a group of 30 people there's going to be four people in baltimore that are that were like huge wire fans and so it's like you walk in and they're like why is the motherfucker from the wire here oh my god what is he fucking doing <laughs> and all of a sudden it's a fucking scene and then they come up to him and they're just like oh my god i loved you oh my and he's and he's just like that was like so many years ago and like i've done all these other things and that's all people know me for and uh, so it's kind of funny, yeah. Well, you never answered the question. Who would you want to have on the podcast? With oh the, fuck! It would be, first of all, it would be so fucking funny to have Kit Harrington on because I would just like you just make fun of him the whole fucking time. <laughs> Wait, I would hair. make fun of him or you? I would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he'd be the most fun to have, right? Plus, he seems like I, he I, seems like he's a good sense of humor. Uh, I don't know about that. I, I mean. I mean, does he like so, someone told me um, someone who was actually an extra on Game of Thrones and and, and I whenever I, I had this happen to me a lot, like people who are like extras on the show and they, they give me proof, but they can't give me like really big proof of them like on set because you're not allowed to take your phone in there. But I usually get like random Lannister guard number seven. Right. And they'll message me. And one guy told me once that uh, this was this was last season. He told me once that Kid Harrington is not a good sport when you bring up the past shitty movies he's done. He did Pompeii. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, don't bring up Pompeii on set because he gets a little annoyed. And he or won't fuck, talk to you. He was he was in some. I saw it on a plane. He's in like the first two minutes of the movie and then dies. And then <laughs> and the, but they they like build him as like a star of the movie because it doesn't have any freaking stars in it. It's got. Mm-hmm. 
it's got Jeff Bridges in it, and it's like, and they like market it as like Jeff Bridges and Kit Harrington. Kit Harrington like dies in the first two minutes of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, like like I said, I, I would really want to get Stefan Delane, and maybe maybe even um, probably butchering his name, but he was also in The Wire. Uh, Aiden Gillian, I think his name is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Baelish. I, I want to ask Baelish. Like, he has done an interview before where he did slightly voice his disple- uh, disple- displeasement, I guess if that's a word, about how the show portrayed his character and handled his character. Mm. Because up until season four, like, Baelish, you know, was doing the thing. And then after season four, a lot of his motivations and, like, his ideas kind of fall flat. I mean, giving Sansa to the Boltons, I guess yeah. she would be safe there. But at the same time, though, wouldn't it be better to, you know, marry off Sansa to someone in the Vale with, you know power and authority and like maybe also keep her hidden eh, yeah i mean you know? i mean i could go on and on all day about how horrible merging sansa with the jane Poole storyline went yeah i mean but i mean so he was upset with the plot and where things were going not the fact that he was he was typecasted and will always be remembered as little finger now I mean, <laughs> well he's done other things since then right he was carcetti he was o'malley essentially well, here's the thing, though. I will say this, and you got a lot of shit for this. I think I think it was the first episode where you said you never watched Harry Potter. Oh, uh, yeah. I've never seen The Wire. Oh, I know. All <laughs> I know. I know. A lot of people are gonna get on my case, but I will. But in my defense, like I was born in '91. When The Wire, when when did The Wire come out? Uh, I want to say it's like 2001 to 2005. Am I? Am I? I was only wrong? like. I was, I was like, what, 12, 14, maybe? Like, hold on, let me look it up right now when The Wire came out because um, I didn't have H- – yeah, it came out in 2002. I didn't have HBO until like 2009, 2010. Mm. So in 2002, I was, what, 10, 11 years old, around there? Yeah. So I, I – like, you know, I've never seen it. I should watch it. A lot of people have been telling me to watch it. I want to. I also want to watch Rome. I've never seen that before. So uh, Littlefinger plays – a character a mayor. Named, named Carcetti. Carcetti. Is he a mayor? Oh wait, no. Is he a, is he a lawyer or a mayor? Well, he becomes mayor. Mm-hmm. But he he's he's based on Martin O'Malley, who who ran for president um, uh, a few years ago. Martin O'Malley became mayor of Baltimore and then became governor of Maryland. Like there were only what four Democrats that ran. You know, it was, it was Hillary, uh, Webb, O'Malley, and Bernie. And um, so O'Malley was was what the the Carcetti character is is, uh, is based on. So you know, just to bring it all into things you might have you might know. <laughs> and I mean, the show is about how everybody is. I mean, it's like Game of Thrones in in that there are no good guys and bad guys. I mean, even right. Game of Thrones has more good guys than The Wire. Like everybody on The Wire is dark and has like a, another side and is shady. We're off topic, but like it was a great show in the in the sense that it's a show about bureaucracy and the cycle of things. Nothing has ever been like it before or after. Um, it's it's just a really it, it was it was it was good stuff. Question three. Okay. Wait, wait. Who did you say you wanted on? Oh, Kit Harrington, right? Because you wanted to make. Fun. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I thought I, it was I so much fucking from. fun to make fun of him. God. Yeah. <laughs> Though, actually, you know, I think I think Macy would be would be the most fun. She seems the most fun in interviews. Macy Williams. Yeah. Maze, is it Maisie Williams? Maisie, Maisie Williams. She seems the most fun in interviews. Uh, she seems pretty quick witted. 
I really like the guy who plays Varys. I feel like he'd be really yeah. I think he'd be really great. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd I'd love to have him too. I'd like to have like the character that like uh, Alfie Allen or something. Just see what he has. I was I was just about to say him because I I was watching John Wick last night. The first John Wick, and uh, I was like, "Hey, that's Theon." Ah, oh, Theon, you're gonna get your ass kicked. Come on, don't do that. <laughs> Have you seen John Wick? No, no, I heard it's good. Go movie. Theon's in it. He's also a dick. So, question three: Julian asks, mm. uh, "Please try to convince Preston that A Song of Ice and Sire is not post-apocalyptic." Julian, listen to me. I'm trying here. Every time I try to tell Preston this, <laughs> he always gives me white noise. You see what I fucking? You see what? I, you see what I mean? So it's no use. We all we all Actually, know we all know that ice and fire is it's a fact that it's, that it's post apocalyptic. It's just whether that's a or not, fact. It's a fact now, really. No, well, we know that there was a long night. Like so. Oh God, get the fuck out of here! That could mean anything. But and, and we know we know that the past was was more advanced than the present because the wall and Storm's End exists. The only question is. And, they... and the certain buildings in Valyria, like, yeah. even Tyrion at one point says, you know, they'll never know how to make buildings like, like right. that last like this again. So we know that society is regressing and we know that there was an apocalypse. The question is, is whether or not the past society was magically more advanced or if it was technologically more advanced. <laughs> or is, you see what you do, Julian? Or is there a You see difference? what happens? You see what you do? See or what you start? There, you know... So that's the thing is, yes, it is. It is post-apocalyptic. It's just whether or not it's like, you know, traditionally post-apocalyptic. Was there a nuclear war or was there a magical event or was there a natural disaster? Whatever. Well, to be fair, society in Game of Thrones could uh, bring itself out of like, you know, the fucking Middle Ages if only the maesters weren't so stuck. Even Kyburn says it. Like the maesters are stuck in their ways. They don't really want to learn things. They just want to pass like techniques and knowledge down right. from one from one somebody's, older man somebody's holding like them back maybe it's the mm-hmm. maesters maybe it's the children of the forest but you don't you don't sit around 8000 years in the middle ages without with you know with no progress without something something bad happening uh, question 4 uh, david bodor asks can you please talk about how arya managed to bake a pie do you think she forced the kitchen staff to chop up the two phrase into small bakeable bits and make the pie? So yeah, yeah, Preston, let's let's, let's go into this because I don't think I, I didn't I didn't really think of this. Well, so do you, do, you, do you have you ever baked a pie crust? I've never baked a pie at all in my life. So so you've got to like get cold water and you have to like get a little fork and you have to like separate. You have to like take the butter. And like separate it in with the flour and the cold water. And you got to make sure it doesn't melt. You know, you've got to get them into these like pea-sized things and then mash them together. And then you've got to like mash it and then set it for a while and have like the butter recongeal. I mean, it's got to create the fake, the flaky crust. If you actually, you know what I should do? Because because I have a second. <laughs> yeah. Even if you ask me, if you've, I'm not gonna give it to you because I'm so embarrassed by this. But I have a second channel where I go on camera and I and I I do cooking. <laughs> I only have five videos and like a couple thousand subs, right? And only one out of I have over 150,000 subs. Only one person has ever found it, but it's me on camera with a chef's hat and like, you know, kiss the cook apron. And I should totally do this for my uh, secondary channel. Just bake a pie and, a pie. you know, just show people how Arya could have done it. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the logistics of, like, taking those bodies and, like, stripping off all the meat, like, skinning them, stripping off all the meat, like, draining the blood, like, like 
finding the flour, doing the baking, like getting the crust, mashing the stuff into a ball, and then like letting it like in a cool place, and then it's just. <laughs> It would take. So does she hold the? Does she hold the servants at like knife point, telling them to fucking? How did, do how all did this? she commandeer a kitchen for that long? Like she would have to have it for like <laughs> the entire freaking day. Like this is not like it's not like just a thing. Like oh, let's bake a pie. Like it's not like cooking hot dogs in the microwave for a minute. Like it takes a lot of freaking time. I, I would love. I would love like a Saturday Night Live skit of like how Arya maybe have Maisie Williams guest star how Arya got them to like bake the fucking thing like you know chop these people up and bake it into a pie make it make it a whole skit you know I would I would love maybe have Funny or Die do something like that I would love <laughs> like a skit you know how Arya managed to do this okay so Preston tell me tell me more about the Dornish Master Plan sum up for the audience who may be new to this what is the Dornish Master Plan and why it's so important to the story. The Dornish Master plan is essentially Doran Martell's plan to get vengeance on everyone that has wronged him and to restore the Roinar to a better place, if not, you know, dominant place in society. Uh, you know, the, the, the story is generally about things coming back, you know, having, having like, a, like a king in the north has come back, the others have come back, dragons have come back. Uh, the, the, the faith militant has come back. Everything's about things coming back again. Mm-hmm. And so the Dornish master plan is about the Roynish component of that, how the Roynish are coming back. So, so basically, history is repeating itself. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the Roynish were essentially destroyed by the Valyrians. And so, you know, it's their attempt to, uh, to restore themselves. Um, I, I, you know, in a dance with dragons, Tyrion passes through their festival city, Croyane, and he has this, you know, deep sadness about the ruinous society, you know, uh, dying and being destroyed. And Doran actually uh, did the same trip Tyrion did, just in reverse. Uh, he started in Volantis and he went uh, north to Norvos, where he met his wife. And so Doran Martell would have actually, you know, passed through Croyane. And had that same sort of sad feeling about the destruction of of the Roynish people, and Oberyn as well traveled to the you know the free cities, so he probably would have seen Croyne as well. And so you know if Tyrion is affected so much by that, then Doran and Oberyn would have been, and they would have been you know wanted uh, Roynish restoration to undo what the uh, what the Valyrians did to their to their society. Well, how does Roynish how how do the Roynish values differ from Westerosi values? Well, I mean, the Roynish values are, are essentially more like modern-day values than, than medieval values. Uh, the, um, men and women are, are equal. It's a more feminist society. They also uh, have social programs. They give, they give uh, money to, to the, uh, the sick and injured, um, things like that. There's more protection of the small folk. So it's it's less of like a. So basically, what you're trying to say is the Roynar would have voted for Bernie Sanders had they had the chance. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, well, That's... George Martin is a feminist himself. Why would he? I mean, he would be a big fan of this culture. Why? Why is it extinct in his books? He writes about sad things. So I mean, he writes about the world ending, and he has his heroes die. I mean, he he basically everything great in a George R. R. Martin story gets destroyed. Anything he likes gets gets ruined. Um, which That's is, which is why so fucking yeah. sad. Holy shit. Uh, he rarely, if ever has happy endings, sometimes they're ambiguous, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe he wants it all to come back again. Maybe that's part of the, uh, I mean, I do. I think the Dornish master plan is about bringing it back, 
The story is a huge criticism of feudalism and by extension, any aspect of our society today that's similar to feudalism. So, you know, anything that resembles serfdom in our society where, where people are working for nothing and trapped in, in their jobs and, and effectively enslaved. Yeah, like the point of ice and fire is the, is the point that out any aspect of Westeros that's super sexist where, uh, you know, women, women have no agency or power, you know, that's that he's making a, a comment about our society and how it's similar. And so, I mean, Roynish society was objectively uh, more modern, uh, superior, progressive, you know. So that's that's what George R. R. Martin's trying to trying to point out that uh, there was there was this really great society, and then it got killed by by Valyrians and their and their dragons, which you know is well, which we'll get to in a bit. Yeah. But one of the main criticisms aimed at this theory is basically people saying. I don't think George was thinking about all of this when he was writing the story. What do you say to that? I mean, George Armand, he's been, he's spent a lot of time writing these books. <laughs> I mean, if, you know, I've been, I've been analyzing his books for, for a good three years or so. And yeah, I put a lot of thought into it. George is, you know, he's smarter than me and he's been, he's been spending 20 years at least just on this book theory, book series, but he's been spending his whole life writing stories like this. It's not that, uh, the, Nord- the Dornish Master Plan is, is very original um, in the sense that George R. R. Martin has written similar things to this in his other work. He has stories about massive conspiracies and massive master plans where people want to uh, affect change. And the way, the way these people tend to go about it is, you know, they, it tends to be having their enemy, convincing their enemies to kill each other you know, while, while sitting by and watching it happen. And that's kind of what the Dornish are doing. They're taking their enemies and convincing them to kill each other. I call this philosophy the Kim Dissey philosophy. Uh, it comes from a book he wrote called Dying of the Light, where um, this Kim Dissey character is in love with, um, well, spoilers, but uh, he, this Kim Dissey uh, character is, is in love with, um, with uh, a woman in the, in the story. And so he convinces all of the protagonists to essentially get in fights and and try to kill each other because he wants them all to die so he can be with the woman. What a douche. You know. uh, yeah, he's he's like Littlefinger. <laughs> oh, he probably my favorite character. Um, <laughs> the one person that really seems weird to me is Kyburn. Yeah, Kyburn. Kyburn's kind of the center of the whole Dornish master plan. Like if 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 Kyburn is not a Dor- like I theorize that Kyburn is a is a Dornish agent. And if he's not a Dornish agent, really everything falls apart. But but he's a weird person to me. Like, in the show, he just randomly happens to be in Harrenhal when Rob's forces arrive. In the books, he's joined up with the Brave Companions and has somehow found a way to rise above his station as a disgraced maester to spy master for the crown. Tell me a bit about Kyburn and some of your theories behind him. Well, I mean, Kyburn is essentially, um, has the same backstory, uh, interestingly, as Oberyn Martell. Really? Go, go into that. So Oberyn studied at the Citadel. He then traveled to Lice and studied poisons. He formed his own sellsword company. Well, first he was in the Second Sons. Then he formed his own sellsword company. He, he, he supposedly studied dark arts. And so Kyburn has a very similar history. He uh, studied at the Citadel before being disgraced and exiled. Oberyn as well was exiled. 
He studied poisons. He studied dark magic. He traveled. He was part of a sellsword company, the Brave Companions. In a sense, if, if the two ever met, they, they could basically talk forever about anything. I mean, what it's like to travel around Essos, what it's like to be at the Citadel, poisons, you know. They're also both kind of interested in the faith of the Seven. Kyburn, absolutely fascinated uh, and obsessed with the faith. While Oberyn, for some reason, decided to raise one of his daughters with knowledge of the faith. Well, well, how, how, how is Kyburn obsessed with the faith? We first meet Kyburn when, um, well, we first meet Kyburn in the Arya chapters. He becomes Bruce Bolton's right-hand man briefly. But then we run into Kyburn again as Jamie gets his hand cut off and he's brought to Harrenhal and his, he, need, he needs uh, his stump healed before it gets infected. And so Kyburn is treating Jamie and he says, would you, would you like uh, some alcohol? And Jamie says, just as a joke, is, you know, does the high septon pray? We, we have the, um, the same joke in English is the Pope Catholic is, mm-hmm. is usually the way we hear it. And uh, Kyburn's response is, of that I'm not certain, which is kind of a weird thing. Like, imagine if you were like, oh, is the Pope Catholic? And then some, somebody's like, I don't know. And you're like, well, that's, that's an odd <laughs> thing to say. You know, um, yeah. meaning you're, you know, you're some sort of religious extremist that doesn't actually believe the Pope is Catholic, like you're Mel Gibson or something. After that, um, Kyburn makes it to King's Landing, uh, where he becomes Cersei's right-hand man. He becomes her master of whispers. But nearly all of his whispers that he brings to Cersei are all related to the Faith of the Seven. Varys, when he's doing whispers, it's about... It's about the whole kingdom. What ha- what's happening in Casterly Rock? What's happening in Highgarden? What's happening in the north? When Kyburn comes, it's almost all about the Faith of the Seven. Um, well, the Faith of the Seven, are, uh, Kyburn mainly becomes spymaster in Feast for Crows. Yes. And the Faith of the Seven are, you could say the, the High Sparrow and the, the Sparrows themselves are really big in the Feast for Crows. Couldn't, couldn't that be the reason why? Uh, certainly. But, but even before the High Sparrow arrives... He's reporting to Cersei on movements with the Faith of the Seven. You know, the High Septon dying is is a vi- the High Septon dying in a Feast for Crows is very important. While the High Septon dying back, the other High Septon dying back in the Clash in a Clash of Kings, we didn't really you know hear much about it. It's not like Varys was reporting on what was going on with with the Faith of the Seven back in a Clash of Kings, but for some reason it's it's prime news in a feast for crows religion is 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 definitely well religion obviously becomes this big thing in a feast for crows but you know kyburn is talking about it before before the high sparrow comes to power you know one of one of both of our favorite chapters cersei for a feast for crows when everyone is sitting at the uh, small council no one else is interested in you know what's going on with the faith of the seven except for you know, Kyburn. Yeah, he's talking himself. about it, and everybody's just bored and bored, uh-huh. right? And so, you know, there there is something to it. Like for some reason, Kyburn knew what was going on. So Kyburn um, is the linchpin of this whole whole theory. Without him, it all falls apart. Without him, it all falls apart. He is he's. Uh, I mean, there's definitely a whole bunch of weird stuff going around, you know. But but everything kind of goes through Kyburn, and that that you know goes with Sorella Sand and Marwyn and the Brave Companions and Oberyn and the Mountain. Well, and, you know, everything. But with Kyburn, like, I, I like that you said that the Mountain's body and Tywin's body, I'll go to, I'll go to him. Do you think he did yes. something to their bodies? I definitely think he did something to Tywin's body. 
but yeah, and I, I definitely think he did something to, to the mountain. Mm-hmm. But uh, Avery Lorch was just kind of fed to a bear. But yeah, it, so, so the big thing, you know, another weird coincidence with Kyburn and the Dornish is, you know, there are three people that are responsible for the death of Ellie and her children. Tywin, who ordered the rape and murder, Amory Lorch, who killed Rhaenys, and then the Mountain, who killed, raped and killed Elia and killed baby Aegon, maybe. Kyburn happens to be at the death of all three characters. So Amory Lorch, when he's thrown into the bear pit at Hall, the brave companions are there. Kyburn is in the audience. Um, later, when, when the Mountain is poisoned, he's sent down into Kyburn's laboratory. And so Kyburn has him there. And when Tywin dies, Kyburn re- immediately arrives, and he's the one that prepares and handles Tywin's body after Tywin's death. All, all coincidentally. Right. There's no other character that is around the death of all three characters. That's a pretty big coincidence. You know? Now, the Dornish Master Plan has these four tenets. Uh, religion, history, Dornish law, and dragons. T- tell me how does mm. religion fit into this? Sure. I mean, the the history we've kind of, well, the history we've kind of talked about. The history is you know big with the with the Roynish and the Dornish were wronged by people, and you know they, they want their revenge and their restoration. Religion is kind of it's similar to dragons, and that's going to sound weird, but uh, George R. R. Martin he's a big atheist too, and he's he's a big, he's a big peacenik. So you got to remember that you know he believes that you know through his other writing that that religion and war have caused probably the most harm to humanity what? as anything else. Stop <laughs> Preston, that that is so not true. Religion every, every like every religion is peaceful. What are you talking about? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the uh the he's yeah, George R. R. Martin uh he's 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 written a, a lot of criticisms of of religion. He has a lot of stories about religion uh bringing about the death of people, causing causing hatred, causing people to fight. And, you know, dragons, we, we kind of know that dragons are a metaphor for nuclear weapons and war. But the, uh, but, but in, so in a sense, if, if, if relig- religion is a weapon, it, 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 I would believe, you know, I believe in George R. R. Martin's mind, just like dragons are a weapon. Um, and so, you know, he's bringing, the, the Dornish are bringing back religion because they know it's going to cause, uh, it's going to cause destruction to their enemies. In both a political way and, like, also according to Dorian's plan, because coincidentally the the fate militant comes back up due to Cersei, but they also mm. are starting a revolution of their own in King's Landing, and they're also getting really getting rid of the ruling power. You know, if you know if there's one thing that can that can rival the state, it's it's the church, mm-hmm. and so you know you can you can bring you know increase one and and and, and destroy the other, um, have have the state and the church fight each other. Even if the faith, when the faith of the seven becomes, you know, extreme, they're going to be fighting. You have to remember they're also going to be fighting extremist red god, you know, believers, uh, extremist old god believers. Um, you know, if if it all ends in a holy war, even better for the Dornish, mm-hmm. as their enemies all kill each other. Well, we have seen in the history of Westeros uh, a previous king. Uh, he went to he went to war with the fate militant. He did. Um, uh, Magro the Cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he went to war with the Faith Militant and uh, uh, killed a lot of people. And then that's what that's what led to the Faith Militant being uh, being banned in the first place. 
the religion back then, the faith was very against uh, dragons back then, and um, so they were they were kind of against everything Targaryen, right? Yeah, well, they were certainly against Targaryen incest, and they were certainly against um, dragons, polygamy. They were, you know, they're definitely against all of those things. And one could one could make a very good argument that the faith of the Seven is responsible for the Targaryens' uh, downfall in the Dance of the Dragons. A little before that, even the, the the faith started protesting certain marriages, and then that all of a sudden dragons stopped hatching. So if there is a connection between, you know, Targaryen marriages and birth and genetics, then you know the faith kind of screwed that up. And then uh, Baylor the Blessed. Um, as well, like was forbidden to marry his sisters and lock them in a maiden vault, and so that you know there there might be some connection there. Um, during the Dance of the Dragons, there's also some some uh, interesting stuff with the faith. Uh, for instance, the Dragon Pit is stormed by a bunch of religious zealots, um, and the dragons in the Dragon Pit are all killed. I mean, um, the 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 maesters also seem to to have a big role in in the destruction of. Uh, of the dragons, as do probably the high towers, but you know that's all kind of old town for- forces. So we'll see. But we're go we're off track a little. But the uh, but the the faith of the seven definitely refers to dragons as demons. Everything everything that perhaps brings about the birth of dragons, as in you know inbreeding of Targaryens that might produce like special genes that can hatch dragon eggs, or at least you know concentrate their genes make them pure blood so they can ride dragons um you know the faith is against that they they wanted the targaryens to to intermarry and not have that ability anymore well what does this say for danny then when she comes over both in the books and in the show well in the show the faith is probably being hunted down by cersei because she has that (laughs) vendetta but in the books how would this fit with uh with danny coming over i mean the faith should be against danny for for a lot of reasons but the uh, one, yeah, she's 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 riding big demonic dragons. But two, like she wasn't raised uh, in the faith of the seven, or at least not to any not to any uh, strong degree. So when she arrives, you know, you know, the, the faith has no reason to um, to like her. She's she's the child of incest. She's she's not a follower. She's even she's even toyed with the idea of polygamy. She uh, give me an uh, example Mort- of this. When, when did this happen? Well, Jorah Mormont uh, told her that, you know, oh, she can marry, you know, several people. So he just wanted to be one of her husbands. And so he was totally cool with, uh, you know, with her uh, banging other dudes, I guess. Well, I mean, obviously he wasn't, but he he was willing to settle on of being one of her husbands. If she arrived as a polygamist, uh, the faith of the seven would not would not like that. How does uh, history and Dornish law fit into this? Because I, I assume they come in hand to hand. Well, the Dornish law is is kind of the end game. So history, you, have, you know, you have to understand the 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 the, the, um, the Dornish were wronged uh, all through history. The Roynish were 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 persecuted by the Valyrians. They then came to Dorne, and and then the the Targaryens tried to invade, and then they they tried to intermarry, and things were okay for a little bit, and then you know Rhaegar goes and dumps Elia for for Lyanna, and Elia gets murdered and raped. They've they've uh, they've never been treated very well, and also they they live in a, in a dry desert area where the water seems to be uh, drying up. When they used to, you know, be happy uh, on a big wet river over over in Essos. They're really um, starting to sound like the Jews. Uh yeah. I mean, I think I think um, 
I think George R. R. Martin is intentionally making that 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 comparison. There's a little bit of Spanish in them. There's a little bit of Arab in them, and there's a little bit of uh, of, of Jewishness in them. But absolutely, the the idea that they uh, that used to have you know a um, a great society that was that was that was uh, then destroyed and they were then persecuted over you know uh, over and over. Though I would never I would never say that the uh, the ancient Hebrews were very progressive, but <laughs> but they but. Uh, but but basically the, the the Roynar now the Dornish yes. they throughout history have been fucked over by almost everybody. Yeah, and and this is this is sort of their their revenge in order to bring about you know a, a better society. Dornish law is just a word for the Roynish way of life. It in, it encapsula it encapsulates um, what the Dornish what the Roynish believe. You know that men and women are equal. That the poor should should uh be helped it also might give a a way for ariana to be queen over say a targaryen or you know uh anyone else right um in in that you know if we're really talking about dornish law dornish numeria would be the queen and so the descendant of numeria in an unbroken line which is the the the, um house martel's words unbowed unbent unbroken Ariana would be queen uh, in that, uh, you know, uh, succession. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's also kind of a trump card. Like people are constantly saying, oh, who's the real, who's the real, you know, ruler of Westeros? Is it Stannis? Is it Danny? Is it John? Well, you know, the, Dorn- the Dornish, under Dornish law, it's Ariana. So you get, you get this end game of, of the Dornish way of the, the Roynish way of life. Ariana as queen, social justice. Better treatment oh, of, the, of the small folk. I know. George R. R. Martin, total uh, SJW, right? Yeah. <laughs> kind of is. <laughs> so so basically the end game here with the Dornish Law is basically to make Ari- Ariane. Yes. Because yeah, by Dornish she... Law, she would be technically the queen. But how, how would they implement Dornish Law if all of Westeros follows a different different code? Well, I'm guessing, I am guessing that... Um, they have to trick uh, somebody into thinking Dornish law is the way to go. A lot of people think that Dornish law is simply uh, equality of gender, but we know that there's an entire huge book of Dornish law that Ariana finds in her tower. So it's going to be more complicated than that. There, there, there's more to it. And so if, say, you presented to Cersei, hey, do you want Dornish law to be national law? She might think, Dornish Law, huh, men and women are equal. That would make me Lady of Casterly Rock. Marcella would be queen, which, you know, is, might be okay if she loses control over Tommen. Like, say in the book, and we don't know if this is going to happen, uh, say Tommen gets controlled by someone else, or say Tommen is killed. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now, and now people are saying, oh, well, if Tommen's dead, Stannis is, is king because he's, he's a man, or... You know, under Dornish law, she strengthens Marcella's case because women women can be a uh, uh, queen, or she can even maybe strengthen her own case. It seems like a good proposition um, in her head, and I can see how it would yeah. be. You know, because Cersei has always had that penis envy; she's always wanting to be in position of power, and it's always seemed to escape her never every single turn. And that and that and Tyrion makes that that exact argument in *A Storm of Swords* when 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 Oberyn first mentions, "Hey, you know." Cersei might be game for Dornish law. Tyrion actually thinks, oh crap, she might. 
that's that's a really good point. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, Dornish Law, it's been around since the appendix of A Game of Thrones. Like, it's it's probably going to play a, a, a bigger role than than just Ariana's failed Queenmaker chapter, which hasn't led anywhere yet, you know. Well, even even if Cersei tries to implement Dornish Law, I think a lot of people will try to talk her out of it because, my God... Only one portion, only one part of the country follows this, and everybody else just does things their way. Well, I mean, certain people would be into Dornish law. Like, if you're talking about the small folk who have fought in wars and are now injured, and Dornish law is 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 promising them compensation, you know, and social programs, the small folk might be totally down with Dornish law. And it might be that Cersei has no choice. If everybody's a spent force... So, I mean, right now, currently in, in our story, the North is about to go to war and totally kill itself. And the Tyrells are about to go to war with, with Aegon and Euron simultaneously and probably destroy themselves. That really leaves the only forces left as the Vale, the Vale forces and the Dornish forces. So if Cersei, if she loses, you know, support from the Tyrells, the only force that she can really look to is considering Sansa pretty much rules the Vale forces uh, through Sweet Robin. The only one she can really go th- for is Dorne. So, I mean, in a sense, she might be desperate and she might be willing to do whatever. Dornish lost, sure. That's fine. I, I, I need your spears, you know. Huh. You actually make a good case there. And what about how, what, how and lastly, how, how does dragons fit into this? These four tenants, these four tenants come up because you know history, religion, dragons, and, and Dornish law. Because those are the four books that are that are left in Ariana's uh, tower. And so dragons, everybody thinks that Doran's plan is to send Quentin to go to go bring back Danny and her dragons. But the Quentin quest doesn't make sense for a, for a lot of reasons that we can get into. But it's a long it's a long uh, rabbit hole. But essentially, dragons are similar in that dragons can kill each other. I mean, if if one side gets a dragon and another side gets a dragon, it's just like the Dance of the Dragons and everybody kills each other. And the one land that is immune to dragons is Dorne. Dorne was never conquered by Aegon the Conqueror. Uh, Rhaenys went in with her dragon and couldn't conquer. They, they killed the dragon, Dorne. So dragons are impotent against Dorne for some reason. The Dornish have a copy of of Septon Barth's natural history because during Baylor the Blessed's time he destroyed all of those books but Dorne wasn't part of the Seven Kingdoms so they have a copy the the, the, the dragon book in, in Ariana's Tower is probably natural history so they probably know how to kill dragons you know whatever it is about the Dornish landscape and what's in this book gives Dorne a huge you know a huge advantage against dragons they can sit back let everybody else burn each other to death with their dragons, and then after everybody's dead, come forward and 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 end up ruling. I guess that would make sense. And but but here's here's my question to you now: What is the mm. end goal for the Dornish Master Plan? The end goal is Roynish restoration. Everybody else either dead or living under Roynish law, uh, in a, in a peaceful, uh, you know, society. Where they uh, where they all live on riverboats and um, <laughs> and and you know there's equality between men and women and everybody lives as a big hippie just like George R. R. Martin would want. 
So so basically, what they're doing is what Peter Baelish is kind of doing, but in with 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 better intentions. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I I do think that there's even more characters doing that plan, the Kim Dissy philosophy, getting your enemies to kill each other. But yes, Littlefinger is definitely one of those characters who takes his enemies and puts them against them against each other. Stark versus Lannister, and just and then laughs as they kill each other. The Dornish, I believe, are doing the you know the same thing. You know arming their enemies with dragons, arming, uh, you know, bringing about religion, you know, making everybody, making everybody fight and, and kill each other. Well, I, I think the biggest strength here, in my opinion, seems to be the Brave mm. Companions. They made a lot of weird moves aimed at crippling the Lannisters, despite being on their side originally. Also, Kyburn was also was with them. But someone also say that the Brave Companions are also a major hole in this theory by arguing that they started a religious movement to oust Cersei. What do you say to that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean the Brave Companions. Um, back three years ago, when I when I when I started theorizing, like one of the big, you know, one of my first theories was, I I, I wrote an essay on how the Brave Companions were Oberyn's sellsword company, and the reason the reason I actually like looked into this and and was was so obsessed with it is because the Brave Companions kept appearing and they didn't make any sense, and I was like, who are these guys, and so. I, I, you know, I went back and started looking at all their activities. And so, yeah, the Brave Companions just, they seemingly act irrational, but it turns out all of their activities are anti-Lannister and kind of benefit the Dornish in the end, you know? They, and so we ha- we know that Oberyn, you know, founded a sellsword company. And so it would be, it, it was a neat idea that I thought, well, what if Oberyn's sellsword company was the Brave Companions? Wouldn't that make sense? And then all of a sudden the Brave Companions cutting off Jamie's hand and, you know, killing Amory Lorch and driving Cersei to insanity and uh, making the mountain into a mount- monster. Like all of these things kind of kind of make sense. Um, well, some, another, another little hole here is that people say the Brave Companions joined Rob because they saw Tywin was losing. But you say the timeline doesn't add up here. Yeah, the timeline doesn't add up. Um, the brave, like the history of the brave companions, is is they start out as Tywin's sellsword company, and then at some point they they meet Roose Bolton and join Roose Bolton, and uh, allow Roose Bolton to sneak in and take Harrenhal. And so then they're officially on Rob's side, but then they leave Rob's side because they they realize that they they're going to abandon Harrenhal now, and they kind of they kind of decide they're going to. They're gonna. They want to butter them, butter up the the Car Starks, and so not the timeline doesn't really make sense uh, because Rob, yes, he's winning his battles, but one of the one huge battle, which is the Battle of the Red Fork, where you know River Run is under siege, Edmure is in the field fighting, and Edmure ends up winning, and River Run is saved, and around the same time, Roose Bolton takes Harrenhal, but Roose Bolton actually starts marching before the victories uh, at at the Battle of the Red Fork. So in a sense, he somehow Roose Bolton had 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 convinced the Brave Companions or the Brave Companions had joined Roose prior to this battle, which really, you know, that's why the timeline doesn't work. Um, it makes sense, yes, if they would have done it after the, Rob's forces winning at the Battle of the Red Fork, but it doesn't really make too much sense for them to do it before. And then the other timeline that doesn't work out is the, everything with the Car Starks. They, they want they want to cut off Jamie's hand before uh, the Car Starks have really 
uh, abandoned Rob. And so, you know, I mean, perhaps George R. R. Martin just screwed up himself. But yeah, the brave you can't really explain the Brave Companion's actions with with what side was winning at the time because the Brave Companions are a big reason why certain sides are winning and you know they, they do these actions before uh, you know major changes. So so the Brave Companions are pretty much I mean, I know Kyburn is like the linchpin, but they I would when I was doing my video on it I did come to you and I was like, this whole thing, them starting this religious movement, I don't know about mm. that. that. That seems like a bit of a stretch. But out of everything in here, I mean, that one piece about them starting a religious movement, that, that's the one thing I can see that does not fit. Everything else. It's, I mean, obviously not everything is rock solid. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and uh, yeah, definitely the weakest part is the fact that the Brave Companions could, I mean, and the Brave Companions do weirdly attack sects. They go out of their way to, to, to desecrate religions. You know, it, it's, it seems a little weird that, that all of these people, this massive movement of thousands of, of sparrows, would come about solely due to the, uh, to the brave companions. I mean, it's war. I mean, there are probably, yeah. more other, probably other groups, other armies, other stragglers and deserters who are doing the same thing. Yeah, the mount, then it's true that the mountain was doing it, and so were the Karstarks. So it was. It wasn't just the brave companions desecrating churches, though the brave companions did a lot of it. And so, the, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a weak part. And so, I would say that perhaps the way that you know this movement also came about, and it, it's going to sound weird, is that Sorella Sand was visiting people with <laughs> her glass candle and, and the medieval and, Skype. Yeah, mid, yeah, exactly the uh, the the Westerosi Skype. Mm-hmm. Um, and although we don't we don't know how much she was doing, we do know that Lancel was definitely visited by someone who was giving him visions. Well, so, tell I mean, us what what glass candle is and what it can do. So glass a glass candle is you know it's essentially the same as as a weirwood tree, but it it, ha- it gives people the ability to to speak across uh, the world, to see across the world, um, and to invade somebody's dreams. So it's it's not only a a uh, uh, it's not only Skype, it's it's also um, Google Maps um, and it, it Inception at the same time. Oh. So like you you know you're able to enter somebody's dream, you're able to, to to see all around the world, and you're able to like communicate across the land. And we know you know we know this this technology exists and works because because Quaith has been visiting Danny with a glass candle. And Sorella and Marwyn are in front of this glass candle. And we do know that, that uh, Lancel, although many people think, oh, Lancel converted to religion because of his near-death experience, when Jamie goes and talks to him in A Feast for Crows, he, he you know, quite clearly explains that the reason he converted to the Faith of the Seven and, and became super nuts is because he was receiving visions. And the glass candle is a mechanism for giving people visions uh there might be other mechanisms uh certainly certainly the werewoods and blood raven have that ability uh but um you know the glass candles are another another way to do it so maybe quaith was visiting him maybe blood raven was visiting him maybe euron maybe the shrouded lord we don't know there's a lot of people that might have been visiting lancel but it could have also been sorella and marwin with their glass candle so they may have been the ones that have been, and if they're doing it to Lancel, maybe they're doing it to a lot of these people. They're, they're putting, putting religious, 
religious uh what's the what's the word fe- fe- religious fever yeah the cre- creating religious fanaticism and and all this and you know this sounds weird and it's you know it's actually the literal definition of tinfoil like people that wore tinfoil tinfoil on their head thought that like the government was invading their brain and invading their thoughts so i understand that it's literally tin it's a literal tinfoil idea but this is also the plot of a whole bunch of George R. R. Martin's stories, mm-hmm. most notably, and Seven Times Never Kill Man, which, and, and Seven Times Never Kill Man is about religious zealots who land on a planet and start killing the local population until the local population starts invading their dreams and making them kill themselves and do stupid things. So it, it's, it's something that George R. R. Martin has done before. Um, he has another story called Men of Greywater Station, kind of the same plot somebody invades you know monster invades the dreams and so they start killing each themselves um it's a very common kind of uh sounds, sounds like friday the 13th or or nightmare on elm street yeah that's what i meant <laughs> nightmare on elm street is what i meant fuck you got the freddy and the jason yeah <laughs> swapped around yeah i mean it is though i think he did it before those movies came out so well, let me props, ask you this. Props to George R. R. Martin. What's, what's the one thing, if you could go back and change the Dornish Master Plan, what would you change? Would, would it be magic? Because you did tell me how, when I came to you about the whole Oberyn using magic on, mm. on the poison to slow the effects, it, it, just, it just, to me, it seemed like he could have put other ingredients in there to slow the effects. What would you change going back to the Dornish Master Plan besides magic? Well, yeah, I mean... Obviously, I, I, I've come to believe that there's not much magic in the world, if, if, if any at all. And, you know, I, I did make a lot of changes. I, I, I would say that the, when I first did the Dornish Master Plan, it was solely focused on Oberyn and Doran's revenge plan against the Targaryens, the Lannisters, and the Ironwoods. But one thing I could never really explain was why Oberyn was scheming long before Elia died. Elia died uh, 17 years before the story took place, but Oberyn's been traveling the world, studying poisons, studying at the Citadel, birthing sand snakes, teaching them religion, training them to fight, um, teaching them history. The whole shebang, going behind the walls of of Volantis, doing all sorts of stuff before Elia died, which, so it doesn't make sense, like that he would be doing a revenge plan, you know, doing all of the elements of a revenge plan before the reason to have revenge has even happened. Which is why, like, later I, I, I changed it to be more about Roynish restoration, that vengeance is actually only a secondary thing. Like, from the beginning, Oberyn and Doran wanted the return of the Roynar. They wanted revenge against the, the ancient Valyrians, not, not against the modern Targaryens, Lannisters, or Ironwoods. And so, you know, most of the changes that I wanted to make, I made when I when I did the Deeper Doran series. And so, I'm I'm sure in like, you know, a few months, I'd I'd want to go back and and change it even more. But uh, I, I I suppose I'm I'm pretty happy with it. Um, I am beginning to think, and this is this is this sounds horrible, but I am actually beginning to to wonder and question Alaria's role, and if Alaria actually is going to have a, a role that's similar to the show um what do you mean in the you, you book, think she you think she's gonna kill durant to prevent all this 
I, I think it's a possibility. Oh. I think it's, yeah. Give, give um, me your reasons for this. Ilaria Sand, we find the most about her in the Watcher chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where she overhears the Sand Snakes and Doran talking about their, their scheming, and she says, oh my God, you guys are on a cycle of, of revenge. You guys are insane. You need to stop. And they, they pretty much dismiss her. The Sand Snakes laugh at her, and Doran says, don't worry, your daughters, no harm will come to your daughters. As if, like, as if Alaria is so selfish that all she's thinking about is her daughters. She's not. She's thinking about, like, the whole cycle of violence. Like, she knew that if, that if Tyene or Obara or any of them die, like, her younger daughters are going to continue the cycle of violence. Like, she understands, like, the problem of war in general. And so since then, and this is in the, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, you know, you'd think that, okay, she would, maybe Ilaria would just go off and hide from all of this war. And, and she even says, like, oh, uh, I better disperse my, my, my daughters because, because of the coming war. But then she doesn't really disperse her daughters, or at least not in a way that would protect them. She takes one of her daughters and she sends them to, her to the water gardens. She takes one of her daughters and she sends her to Sunspear. She takes one of her daughters and she puts her on uh, Ariana's trip to meet Aegon. So she has a daughter, you know, well-placed in all of these very vital places of Dorne. Like mm. One with Dorne at the Water Garden, one with And Dorne's these are little cousin. girls, right? These are little girls, 15 and under. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the oldest one is 15. You don't, if you want to protect your daughters, you don't put one on a trip with Ariana to go meet Aegon in the middle of a war zone. Right. You, if you want to protect your daughter, you don't send them to the capital city to be the cupbearer for, for the Castellan. Like, Sunspear is going to be the first place the war would go to. If you, if you, if you want to protect your daughters, you don't send one right to, to Doran Martell's side uh, at the Water Gardens. If the war comes, like, that's going to be the first place that, you know, they're going to attack. So it seems more likely that she's sending her daughters to uh, be spies. Uh, to spy on Doran, to spy on Manfred Martell, to spy on Ariana, and that makes me that makes me wonder about Alaria's uh, future. So we'll see. I mean, it would be really sad if if you know all, you know Doran is killed like in the show before any plan even gets really going in the show. Um, yeah, I mean, I would hate to see I would hate to see that happen. But you mean in the books? Yeah, yeah, in the books. Yeah. <laughs> and I would not want the books to be like the show where before even we hear the inkling of a plan, everyone's dead. Well, I was actually, did you get the uh, link I sent you to watch that one YouTube video from that one guy as to the reasoning why he believes the, in the show Dorn is so f- messed up? Uh, well, explain it to me again. Um, no offense to this guy. He's, he's a cool dude, but uh, it takes him two hours to basically say this. Um, pretty much, the reason Season 5 was bad when it comes to House Martell and Dorne in general was because they were writing it on the fly, if I have this correctly, because the video's two hours and it's a little hard to, to understand what he's saying, but basically from the gist of what I got was that they were writing it as it was filming. Mm. And the reason you can tell this is that the behind-the-scenes footage of the earlier Dorne episodes... You can tell that Alexander Siddig, you can tell that they told him, or he was under the impression that his character would have a big role to play. He definitely did say that in interviews, yeah. Yeah, and ultimately he didn't, right? Right. So, 
if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, it's in the first earlier episodes, it looks like Alexander Siddig is, you know, he's alluding to the fact that something big's going to happen with his character, but ultimately nothing big happens. Right. Well, according to this guy, the writers, the showrunners themselves were writing the storyline on the spot. They didn't have, they had nothing thought out in advance, which is preferable if you're going to do a television show, I'm assuming. <laughs> so they did it on the fly, which is why it wasn't that great. Not only that, but apparently they had a really big, well, the guy called it a crush or a hard-on. Like, I don't remember what he said, but apparently the showrunners really wanted to use, um, what's the one that played Ilaria? Um, oh, I forgot her name. Shit. They really wanted to in, use uh, Indira Indira Varma. They yeah, they really wanted to use Indira Varma for some reason. I, I guess they were big fans of hers, but they really wanted to use Indira Varma. And the reason this guy says this is because if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, they're never focusing on the main guy Duran. They're always focusing on Alaria. The camera mm. always follows Alaria. I don't know why, because Duran he's the big player here, yet we're following her. Yes, yeah. Doesn't really make much sense. And it would also kind of make sense if this was true because Duran ultimately does accomplish nothing. Nothing happens with his character. Whether or not his character isn't... It reminds me of... Have you seen Suicide Squad? I have. It's it's like... It's like Deadshot. Not Deadshot. um, The Joker. Oh, no. I was thinking, who's the the one where they they introduce him and then he gets killed like two seconds later? Oh, um, uh, Slipknot. Slipknot. <laughs> okay, Slipknot. For me, for me, it reminds me. For me, it reminds me of the Joker. Like, if you take out the Joker, nothing's different. Same with Slip Slipknot. If you take out Slipknot or the Joker, nothing's different. The same thing happens. Same here. It, it, Marcella still dies. Uh, Dorn still, you know, gets under control of the Sand Snakes and Ilaria. Very pointless, but it, it would make sense. And I think what he said was on the behind-the-scenes Blu-ray DVD stuff. Uh, the showrunners admit that they had no idea what they were doing with Dorn. Yeah, but I do also wonder, and like I say, I only have, there's only this one little hint of Alaria becoming a player in The Winds of Winter with, with her uh, putting her, her children in places. I still do wonder, you know, what George R. R. Martin told D&D about the plot and how, you know, how, and maybe they were just fast forwarding to that. They're like, you, well, you think, we know. You think Alaria eventually like kills Duran and that's what, and because we all know D and D are following the bullet points of what happens in the end game, right? So and you so think I wonder if the that's end game... just the last bullet point that they were getting to, and so I'm I'm open to that. It would be really, it'd be, you know, I'm really hoping that Doran has this master plan, but I'm just wondering, you know, it's much in the same way that like, okay, well, if little Littlefinger has a master plan, but maybe he's, you know, going to get killed by Sansa. We don't, we know, we don't know. George R. R. Martin's books, the master plans do usually get messed up too so for instance in dying of the light the guy's master plan doesn't go that well and he has to kill he kills himself but you know i'm i'm hoping that you know something will will be revealed about about doran's scheming before uh before uh, alaria you know takes him out but uh, you know i'm definitely wondering if that if that's going to happen Alright guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the second episode of the Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, Preston, do you have anything you want to plug? Anything you want to say to the audience before we get off? Um, no, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> unless you wanted to talk about Balon Swan. <laughs> well, we'll talk about that next time. Alright. What, people got on your case because you said Balon Swan was gay? 
I yeah, it was like the least important thing I'd said because frankly, who cares if Balon Swan is gay? But mm-hmm. but yes, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people. Uh, if all of my videos, I've never had more questions like sent to me, like uh, what Balon Swan is gay? What do you? Why, <laughs> it's like of all the things I've said, like that was that was the thing that was the <laughs> the, the thing that really like piqued everyone's interest. Balon, <laughs> what, what was the main topic oh, of the video? So I have a video series where, where I, I go over the Winds of Winter chapters, mm-hmm. like line by line. You know, Balon Swan is part of the discussion because he's going off to, to find Darkstar. And Ariana, mean, meanwhile, is going to meet John Connington. And she well, well, let's save she, this for next time. Yeah. How about that? That sounds good. That sounds good. All right, guys. Uh, and this is also my, the first time I've been on your channel. Because you've been on my channel a couple of times before besides the podcast. Or I had you read the uh, Danny Diarrhea chapter. Oh right, yeah. That was that was mm-hmm. the uh, the hot, that was essentially like the peak of my 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 YouTubing. Actually, you know what? Before we get off, I just want to tell your audience one thing. Um, I have like this kind of bounty on my channel where I told my audience, if I if you guys can find someone or any of you guys can do a great impression of me, I will give you a twenty dollar gift card to Amazon, right? And and I it has to be a good impression, a legit impression. So I'll, so I'll I'll give this the same to your audience, but instead okay, of me. Okay. I want your audience to find a someone who's really good at impersonating you, who sounds oh, like you. Crap. And, and uh, that's right. And, that's and dangerous. I, wa- <laughs> I, I want someone who can do a great impression of Preston. Like, message me on my Facebook or Twitter. Like, it has to be a good, legit impression. Because if you can do one, <laughs> if you can do one, I want you to come on the podcast with us. And I and I want to have dueling Prestons. I, I, the audience has to figure. It's be like a game. The audience has to figure out who's Preston and who's not really Preston. So Crap. we're gonna do something like that. I get. I didn't know. I didn't. I've never thought about whether or not my voice is like unique enough that that one can do an impression of it. Like you know, like a Sean Connery or a Jack Nicholson or a Schwarzenegger. Where, yeah, or a Schwarzenegger, where just kind of everyone knows, like oh. That's a that's a that's a Schwarzenegger, you know. Well, that's like, why I put like a bounty on it, cause you know, it, yeah. like 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 people, you know, if if people are people are usually motivated by money, so I'll give you like a twenty dollar gift card if someone could do a great impression of Preston. Please come to me, let me know, because my buddy, <laughs> my buddy, the Walking David, he does a great Jon Snow, a good Rick Grimes. He does uh, he does another really big uh, Game of Thrones YouTube. I'm not gonna say who it is because I don't want to plug this guy because he has too many subscribers already. But I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> of course, he does yeah. he does a great he does a we'll have him on sometime and and, and uh, we'll pretend like it's uh, that YouTuber. But uh, please, guys, if you can do a great impression of Preston, let me know. I want to have you on the podcast. We'll play a little game. Who which which one is the real Preston? <laughs> All right, sounds good. Yeah, cause, cause, yeah, you have the same thing I do. Like, I don't think I, I can be impersonated either, cause it's, I, I think I have a normal voice, and you have a normal, right, normal right. voice. You don't have a Jerry Seinfeld voice or a, or a Chris Rock or anything like that. They could be easily impersonated. But, but, but in many ways, I feel like they found those voices. It's like if you, if you go and you find an early uh, Pacino movie. Pacino acts like a normal person, and then <laughs> later on, he becomes Al Pacino. Like, right. ca- you know, caricature Al Pacino. It's the same with Jack Nicholson. Actually, if you watch some of Jack Nicholson's early movies or Marlon Brando, <laughs> they haven't they haven't found their caricature yet. Yeah. So Joe Pesci. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I've never seen any early Joe Pesci stuff. I, I, I always thought Joe Pesci was the same guy in every. He, he reminds me of. Yes. Um, reminds me of uh, fuck George Clooney. To me, George Clooney is the same guy in every movie, except he's wearing a different suit. Right, but at least George, you know George Clooney is so boring that you can't possibly do a caricature <laughs> of him. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for watching. As always, leave your questions below or send your questions. Uh, you don't read the fucking comments, do you, Preston? Uh, sometimes. Nah, bullshit. Uh, send your questions. <laughs> send your questions to me on Twitter or my Facebook page, or send it to me in an inbox, and uh, we will answer them in the after show, which will also be on Preston's channel. Thank you so much for uh, for listening. We're also on iTunes and SoundCloud. I think I think I said this in, in, in the beginning. Uh, and the reason we're late on here, by the way, because people are blaming me. Blame this guy. He's been on vacation. Where did you, where did you go on vacation again? Uh, Kosovo and Albania. Co- where? Uh, yeah, Kosovo and Albania. <laughs> the fuck are you doing there? I have a quest to go to every country before I die. So uh, this is this is an, another aspect of Preston. But yes, this. Oh, is... well, we're going to talk about that in the after show because yes. uh, so, someone asked me something about you, and I, I want to get into this. But uh, we will see you guys on the next episode of the Game of Thrones podcast, where we will also unveil the logo to the podcast. Uh, I think it looks fucking awesome. Uh, you saw it. You, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah, pretty good, pretty funny, pretty uh, pretty awesome. Glad to hear it. <laughs> Th- thanks for right. listening, guys, and we'll, we'll right. see you guys next time. Have a All good right. one.